hello and welcome to the Write for Your Life podcast, a show about creative writing, copywriting, reading and the ever-changing publishing industry. Bandwidth for January has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5 and they really are total maximum boss. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know that you heard all about them here on 5x5. I'm Ian Broom. And I'm Donna Sorensen. And uh, do you have any snow over there in Copenhagen? Surprisingly not, actually. I've seen your pictures uh, on the interweb and uh, it looks very, very lovely and fluffy. It's a combination of loveliness and fluffiness and there's a whole lot of slushiness going on as well. Yeah, I guess if it's going to get warm quickly. Oh, but don't you just love snow? I do like snow. Do you know what happened this morning? No. My first ever, I didn't even know it was possible, my first ever um, snowstorm that involved thunder and lightning. Oh, very cool. It was cool. It was also kind of terrifying and uh, apocalyptic, but it was there was like a pink flash and then the loudest thunder and it was just, the snow was coming down and I thought, this is it. <laughs> this is it, what? We're all going to have it. to get in spaceships and go look for another planet to settle on. I didn't know what it was, but I thought that it was it. Yeah. I bet your windows were rattling away with their spooky uh, noises. Not really. That's only wind-related. Um, just sort of standard weather is uh, is fine. Snow's fine. Well, that's nice Rain's if there's fine. no wind. Then it must have uh, been very pleasant snow thunderstorm. It's 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 been fine but freaky. Mm, yes, Quite like um, yes. So uh, we're going to talk about uh, all sorts of things. We ha- we have our, our Google Doc in front of us, which uh, which we use to uh, share notes and and try and keep ourselves somewhat on track, if possible. <laughs> and um, and this week you have you've you've filled it to the brim. Yeah, well, there's just so much going on, eh? I mean, I didn't even write in the fact that, you know, I mentioned last week that I was going back to do it. I was going to a studio to do a voiceover recording. I was very excited about Mm. it. Um, Well, I've gone now from being a semi-professional voiceover artist to being actually a professional voiceover artist because I was asked to do another unrelated voiceover recording for a Sony mobile video. Wow, is this this kind of... Are you moonlighting, or is this still part of you? <laughs> no, it wasn't. Like, it, was, uh, it wasn't anything to do with my job. They just said, "Seeing as you're here," <laughs> um, so that was quite cool. It was very. I loved it. It was great fun. Um, it's quite weird, like saying stuff with a massive microphone, like right up your nostrils. But um, but in being in a booth where there's lots of people looking at you outside, I loved it. Do you enjoy recording? Uh audio that isn't this podcast well, I won't ask you if you enjoyed doing this podcast I don't, I don't think I want to know the answer but um, how, do you, how do you feel about recording audio and, like, and hearing your own voice because this is something that writers have to do from time to time how does, how does it feel? And that felt quite good um, I think it's when it's it might be different if it was English people I was doing it for but you know a, a room full of Danes and they're like oh yeah yeah <laughs> so they probably wouldn't even mind if I was like so there's no such thing as bad weather which I could easily do, you know, they wouldn't even mind. They probably like that. So it just it's always feels like it's quite a successful endeavour. Um, 
But yeah, we have talked, haven't we, about how weird it is to hear your own voice, but how necessary, obviously, if you're going to be writing stuff, you've got to hear how it sounds. I'm having a bit of a problem with my own voice at the moment. Um, is it the word tongue? I, just, I can understand no, why. I'm, fi- I'm fine with the word tongue, but it's <laughs> funny you should bring that up again. Because I think, you know, generally speaking, I don't have a particularly strong accent. In fact, especially when I, you know, talk um, uh, on the podcast or in other public areas, I try and enunciate better. Um, but I, I got laughed at two days ago for for a vowel, and it was the it was not the same vowel. It wasn't my tongue vowel. It was uh, it was my u. I can't remember what I said. It wasn't a swear word, but um, it does. It is that sound. And um, I don't know what I said, but I think it was. It could have been gun or a uh, bum. Oh, Tom. Well, I can tell you, related to that, I was shocked to have a, a brief discussion with one of your sons and asked him what a picture was in a picture book. And he said it was a dump truck. <laughs> that was amazing because that's that's my nephew. And we have different accents. And it all starts to get quite, quite interesting. Like they come should, from a uh, different place to me. You should hear his uh, his Danish. <laughs> um, um, and, but I, I'm struggling with. Um, I've been trying to do some audio recording, um, like recording some short stories, and um, and I, I I'm, I'm struggling with the word his. I struggle to specifically say the word his when it's before a similar sounding kind of um, um, what do you call them? Sort of? Structures. Yeah, or maybe a phoneme. I'm not sure. Um, so, and his. So uh, there was uh, a man who was holding an umbrella and his briefcase. Now, I didn't say it too badly then, but I, I'm finding myself... Because I think I, if I said that in real life and I wasn't recording it, I would say, and his. I would say, he's, well, he's on the umbrella and his, and his, uh, mm. and his uh, uh, stick. And um, when I have to try and uh, enunciate that, I have to try and say, and his... And I just, I just don't naturally have the huh, huh. <laughs> and his something or other. Yeah, I know, but that, it, it gets tricky when you start overthinking a word as well. And now, you know, you could, ha- you could be stuck on that for years. The his is indeed, and it's made me feel guilty about last week when I um, sort of was criticising the person who talked a lot like this <laughs> because it may be the case that he cannot talk in a normal way. But by crikey, I bet he can say, and his. <laughs> Absolutely. I did tell you, didn't I, that I once went to a poetry reading by a fantastic poet who um, has a really, really pronounced stutter so that they can't perform in public and um, and that they pre-recorded themselves and they played it to the uh, at the launch of their poetry collection. It was so atmospheric. Have I told you that? You haven't. What did they do? What, what were they doing um, physically while this was happening? They were standing at the front. And he actually, he introduced, well, no, he briefly introduced the, the poetry, but he just, I think, you know, he knew that he couldn't do it justice if he was to read it um, there. Because, you know, I mean, I, I have heard poets who have, you know, certain speech issues with stutters and stammers and what, what have you, and they've kind of battled through it. But but this poet, it was, it just added to the the atmosphere in that room. It was incredible. It was like he was coming out of the walls. So, um so yeah, that was fascinating. Sounds intense. Can I, while we're on the subject of poetry, can I tell you some absolutely shocking stats? I would love to hear some shocking stats. Thank you. Um, 
I read a little piece this week um, on a website called realpants.com. And we'll put that in the show notes. Where, where will they be, Ian? The show notes for this week's episode of the Right For Life podcast will be at 5x5.tv slash WFYL slash 146. That's right. They will be there. Um, this was a little piece called Harsh Truth About Poetry Publishing. And you, you, you can go along and have a little read of, of the piece itself. But I just wanted to share a few of the stats from it because... Um, this Scrambler is the name of the uh, the poetry press that this piece was based on. And um, they wrote that when they were getting started, they contacted small po- poetry publishers just to kind of get a sense of how, how it was to, to publish poetry books. And um, and they got into a dialogue with the publisher of No Tell Books, who, um, who had been po- publishing poetry for a while, and their stats were what they shared was just for me it was absolutely staggering um i'll just read you a brief bit they said that they publish poetry by people who are having poems published in journals like poetry and best american poetry and titles that get taught in universities and in order to be one of their best-selling books do you know how many copies you would need to sell can you guess so to be to be no te- oh, so one of t- No Tell Books' best selling poetry books. I can tell you that well, at the time of writing this blog post, it had taken them four, what was it, three years to break even the best selling title. Okay. And um, uh, so I'm assuming, well, so I assume it's going to be low. Okay, best selling title, I'm going to go for 86. 86, yeah. Well, okay. after four years. Their best-selling title had sold 228 copies. That's not much for a best-selling title. No, and their flops, they said, sold around 70 or so after five years. <laughs> That's quite quite unbelievable. Um, other other publishers have shared that some their new authors sell around 25 to 30 copies. <laughs> I was just like, what? Oh, my God. Um a poetry title reviewed in the New York Times can sell between two and 4,000 copies. That is like the absolute, absolute top sales figure. Um, but the other publishers oh. were also saying, you know, they could get around 800 uh, copies sold of titles and things like that. And those were books that were big name poets, like shelved in chain bookstores with good distribution and strong reputations. And that is just the reality of publishing poetry. It is... A charity, which is subsidised by the fiction and non-fiction sales of publishers. That's basically what is happening in the world of poetry publishing. I just wanted to share it with everybody because, I mean, it just kind of gives you a, a certain amount of respect for poetry publishers, doesn't it? But it also makes you think, okay, no wonder there's no poetry books being published. And it's quite true that even poets who want to get published buy very few poetry books and if they're not buying poetry books then I mean come on seriously who is and how does that make you feel as a poet well I mean it makes me feel better about the fact that my poet my publishers have not told me how many I've sold and I haven't asked because I thought you know what it's probably best that we just like let it let it run on for a few years and then I can look at it again and and it's just good to know that this is kind of like the playing field um, 
But it also does make me think, okay, even though I absolutely adore writing poetry, I mean, I'm just going to absolutely have to explore other avenues for my writing because, you know, ultimately nobody will see it. Yes, um, it's, that's an interesting phrase to use, that this is the playing field. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I think that's... Um, I don't I don't want us to uh, get out our negativity whistle straight away and stop piping away. Um, Let's call them reality whistles. Okay, reality whistles. Um, but um, but I think that's something that I've learned from having my first book published. It, it was published... Uh, it is published by... Um, uh, by Legend Press, which is a, a, a UK-based publisher, um, and and they're one of the good ones. You know, they're they're a, they're a good sort of smaller independent publisher, um, and and uh, and that's great. It's you know all, all good, but um, it has made me. It did sort of make me. Not that I had ludicrous expectations beforehand, and not that I have completely awful expectations now um, because I, I knew enough before I sort of entered the, the publishing game, if you will, to, um, you know, I, I'd done my research. I knew what roughly to expect. Um, so um, my, my opinions haven't changed wildly, but I, I do I do kind of feel now that I, I you know, I, I know what I'm dealing with. I know what the playing field is. Yeah. And I don't mind. I, I don't mind. I don't think I mind. Do I mind? No, I don't mind sharing. I may have already done it before, but I, I know that my book has um, been out for two and a bit years, uh, two and a quarter years. And I don't have exact figures because of um, the way publishing works, as I've discussed on other episodes that you don't find out until several months later how many copies you've sold. But it's, um, it's I, I would imagine it's probably between three and 4,000 now. I, I'm laughing because that's a very sort of non-specific answer, but I don't actually know. Uh, it's definitely more than 3,000, uh, but it might not be more than 4,000. And that's with it having been in um, Amazon's, like three Amazon promotions where it's been available for 99 pence, or I think it was available for 2.99. This is pounds um, at some point. And the, the first promotion at 99p was the first month it was out, when of course a lot of them were being sold. Um, now that's uh, that's that, that that you know. So most of the most of my that was the ebook. So most of my most of the books sold are um, ebooks. But part of the problem you have, and this is definitely the case with poetry, but also it's definitely part of the problem that, that I've had, is that um, it's just been really difficult to get the book into bookshops everywhere. It is in some bookshops, but it isn't in, you know, I, I'd, I'd be surprised if you could go into your local independent bookshop and it was definitely there sat looking at you. You can ask for it and they will order it in, but it's not like it's widespread mainstream at all. Mm. Um, yeah, and that's and, part and, of the problem, but then I guess the rest of the problem is that it's not lying on the uh, the nicely put out tables in the middle of the bookshop where you think, oh, look, they've selected some books they like this week. No, they haven't. Well, that's true. They've been paid to put them there. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, but although, that, that, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that, <laughs> that's, that's uh, that, I think that's pretty much true. Um, and I was about to say that wasn't the case for me uh, because my, my, my book was um, right in the middle of, Foils in St Pancras. Foils is a really nice uh, sort of chain of bookshops in the UK, and um, and, and their shop in St Pancras Station, sort of hub of uh, activity in in central London, and um, and it was it was on a stand um, my book, and um, 
I was delighted. I just couldn't believe it. I thought, this is amazing. What if like everyone starts doing this? Um, and and this is not to complain about such a thing. This is brilliant. But I, I, it wasn't... No one paid anyone to put it there. But, um, you know, I, I people know people. Not me, but people close to me know people who, you know, are high up in foils and favours may have been asked, <laughs> I suspect. I don't I don't know that for sure. I might be wrong, but I suspect highly that that was the case. Uh, but it, is, it does still stock copies. The point is... The point is, it, it is a it is a challenge, and poetry, particularly, um, is is uh, really difficult to sell in in huge quantities. But this all comes back to, you know, uh, I suspect that if there are any of you out there listening who are st- who aren't sort of now utterly and totally stressed out and upset with the idea of writing anything in the future, then I, I do think it's important to remember that uh, these things are sometimes the look of the draw um and being in the right place at the right time and and uh and you know never an indication of the quality of your work never i mean i'm happy to say that like how many copies of your poetry or your novel or your short stories you sell it is no indication of how good it is whatsoever i'll tell you someone who won't be struggling to sell copies of her book right now helen mcdonald no what she just won uh, she's just won the Costa Prize. Yeah, and it's so exciting that it's on my bedside table, currently being read. Well, the Costa Prize? <laughs> yeah, H is for Hawk. I'm on page two. Indeed, and I did a I did a brilliant tweet. I don't know if you saw my brilliant tweet, but I tell you what I said. I said because my novel is called A is for Angelica, of course, and I said, "Huh, that's my alphabetized career in writing ruined." And, and and people laughed. They laughed. No one replied on on Twitter, but they were lols. laughing. Oh, there were some imaginary lols. There were some imaginary lols. <laughs> um, oh yeah, of course. I didn't really think about that. I mean, it's it's it was totally a random book that I was bought, but um, interesting. Hang on, you didn't really think about that. No, you didn't. You didn't. You didn't. When, when there was a book called H is for Hawk, you didn't think. Um, oh, that's a bit like A is for Angelica, the uh, the book by my co co host of of the podcast I do and uh, friend brother in law. You didn't never put the two together at all. No, never thought of me once. Not even not even for a brief moment. In fact, it took me like quite a while there when you were talking just to even put them together. <laughs> I'm just. I obviously I got it straight away when he said no. I didn't think about that. I do apologise. But for me, I was just blown away by the hawk on the front cover, so I didn't really think about the title at all. It's a very, very visual cover. I'll just be crestfallen alone for the rest of this show. Um, Should we cheer ourselves up with a listener's question? Listener's question. And um, and, uh, I'm I'm delighted to share with you that... uh, uh, last week's listener's question was by Jesse Kepke. Kepke. And um, I was right. That is that is how you uh, pronounce his name. And um, uh, and to celebrate, we're going to use one of uh, Jesse's other questions this week. <laughs> um, he may be the only person listening to the show. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. My mum is listening. <laughs> That's true. Um, now, 
but the reason I, I think it's a good question, and it's one that I've been asked a number of times in the past. So I will try and answer it now, even though I don't know the exact answer. But I know I know what my answer is, uh, as in I don't know what the sort of correct answer. But I, I, I have one. <laughs> okay, go um, on. The thing what I'm what I'm saying is I don't know the exact right answer, but I have an answer. Yeah. I'll share it now. The question first is: Should you copyright uh, your book? Uh, could you read it, Donna? Because my sc- my screensaver just came on halfway. There was only Aww. there's only there's any any at any point during the entire podcast, my screensaver could have come on and no one would have noticed. But <laughs> uh, well, the five se- <laughs> yeah, the five seconds that it that it could have come on and uh, it ruined everything. It did. Should you copyright short stories or novels before submitting? If so, how? That's a good question, Jesse. Um, and so um, this is a stress that I think a lot of uh, writers seem to have, is that if they're sending their work off to, um, I don't know, competitions or to journals or perhaps even to agents um, or even direct to a publisher, should you copyright them? You know, what's to stop? Um, you know, let me let me inhabit my mother for a second. What's, what's why someone might just take it they might they might copy them she wouldn't say copy and paste they might just they might just transfer it to their own letterbox and 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 that would be it they would use it and they would become famous and rich and you should have become a teacher mm. and um and and a lot of people say this and I, I i always think i always think how you know you've got to trust people in this life yeah but there's uh, i mean while i mean, will discuss the the technicalities of this there are something to be considered is like absorption of your ideas into publishers' heads. Publishers are commissioning ideas and things like that. That's quite something which I'm not sure that we could say, don't be ridiculous, that would never happen. You know, they've seen your manuscript, it's not what they want, but a little a little way down the line they're like asking other people, Well, what about this kind of idea? That that could definitely hmm. happen. So what if you what if you change the letter and involved a hook? because it's basically the same book yeah yep Hmm? yep um but yeah i mean obviously they're not just going to take your manuscript but i i do i have wondered about that like you know like the osmosis of your idea into their brain yes i think that yeah i think you might be right i think that might be a a genuine concern but i I don't know what you do about that apart from publishers (laughs) Uh, that's all self-publish, I suppose. If you're if you're concerned about if you're concerned about that, then I I think you're concerned about the wrong things. If you're concerned about that, you should just write an absolutely incredible book to go with an, an amazing idea, and then they won't be able to say no. If only it were that easy, it, eh? Exactly, and I don't know. I don't know what you can physically do. I mean, this is where I don't know the actual technical answer because I don't think that. Um, I don't think that there is a lot that you can do. When Jesse asked this question on on uh, on Twitter, um, a, a, a fellow listener um, replied, "That's uh, Sean Mahalik, who's actually also been on the show before, um, who has uh, who's got a couple of novels published." And he said, "I don't have the tweet right in front of me, but it was it was effectively the the." Uh, the content is copyrighted the second it's created almost you know it's kind of it's it's your intellectual property and and theoretically no one can actually do anything about that or or take it um and uh and i and yeah i could say i don't know the technical ins and outs 
the the advice I would give is just make sure that the people you, you're sending it to are like you know check them out, do your research, s- send it to reputable agents or sort of to reputable journals. Um, uh, you know, look at their track record. Uh, uh, don't just kind of Google people who publish books. Go to the first sponsored site. Um, scroll through the Comic Sans intro text and then click on the Submit Here button and send off your work because they're probably not going to treat it with the respect it deserves. But if you do your research and you're kind of sending it somewhere that's got some sort of reputation, then I think it should be okay. Mm. I don't do it with my poetry, but back when I was submitting children's uh, manuscripts, I would email them to myself at that date, so I had them there. I don't think it really matters but you know at least you know that you've at that date you were approaching people the uh the mid-90s version of that was when people would say and we did we did this i just remembered when i was in the rubbish band they weren't rubbish they were great i was terrible um when i was in the band we we recorded something we recorded a a five track ep called someday recollected and you know now later we do recollect it and um, we uh, we thought, well, we need to copyright this because these songs, this this is gold. Massive, yeah. Yeah, this is could, this could take off seriously. <laughs> so um, uh, and and so we need to do something about this, and we need to get some pretty hard hardline copywriting going on. So what we did was the uh, kind of the physical version of what you just described, and we we uh, we got one of the CDs, and um, and we put it into an, a giant envelope and we folded the envelope three times over and over and over to make it extra secure and then we taped it down like we've never taped anything down before and then we wrote our own address on it, I don't know who's, probably mine and uh, popped it in the post But what, a, what a, a treasure that you have now, do you still have that package? You can't ever open it because you still could be absolutely massive as a band um, I don't have my package anymore but what? I do have <laughs> I do have uh, I have the memories and I have I probably have those five songs somewhere too. Great. I mean, look at things like that just might put your mind at ease doing that, you know, but you don't I don't think it's necessary. Let's put it that way. No, I don't think it's necessary. I've just remembered the title of one of those songs. I've said before I was a pretty rubbish lyricist and um and and of course I was a I was in my late teens, so I was very earnest. I was either earnest or trying to crack really good jokes. Uh, there's a, a title of one of the songs was "Another Crack Makes the Surface Harder." I mean, that's pretty deep. Do you know what that sounds like? Like a child's idea of a song title. I was thinking that sounded like it could have been written by a robot. Good segue, <laughs> which is also a robot. Also a robot. <laughs> um. I wanted to share with everyone that I've been delving into the murky world of novels written by robots. Did you know that such a thing was possible, Ian? Is this the mechanical equivalent of the monkeys that will eventually write Shakespeare? What do you mean the mechanical version? Which monkeys? The monkeys. Yeah. If you if you put... Uh, I think this is exactly the phrase. If you put a million monkeys um, in a room... With some typewriters, eventually they will type the uh, the the entire um, works of Shakespeare. When you say monkeys, do you mean chimpanzees? Um, I I mean 
kind of I th- it's either maybe an orangutan collection of orangutan. If you put a million orangutans, yeah, this is a scientific into, fact. Yeah, into a room yeah. with with some typewriters and some bananas to keep them going. You will then get eventually something they out will... of it <laughs> on paper. Yeah. Oh, brilliant! Um, there's a little story that I noticed this last week in the, on the BBC website called "Could a Robot Write a Novel?" Um, and what I, I mean, there was lots of interesting things about it. We'll put it in the show notes, obviously. But one of the things that I found really interesting was that back in 1983. A computer program, well, you could say a robot, did actually write a book of poetry called The Policeman's Beard is Half Constructed. And you can read that online now, that poetry book. Okay, so I have some questions. Go for it, because I'm an expert after reading one article. Um, when you say constructed, that's an interesting phrase, because you could argue that we... You know, we we don't we we write something, but then most of the work after that is 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 construction. Um, so I like that. But um, is there is there a chance that the, the robot just chucks out any old nonsense and and uh, and someone said, well, that looks a bit like poetry? Yeah, I mean, the, you can actually look yourself at the text. There are a lot of it looks like fragments, like Sappho's fragments from you know ancient ancient times. It's it is. Obviously, you know, humans have created this program. Their input is affecting what the robot is doing. And then they are putting it onto a piece of paper, you know, onto the screen afterwards. I don't know how much with this they put, they decided what went where afterwards. But it's obviously just interesting to imagine that that was what, how many years ago was that? Off the top of your head? 1983? Yeah. 22? 32. <laughs> Oh yeah, thirty-two years ago. That's a good point. That is oh, good that is a long that's, time ago. That's just after we were up conceived, and I was going to say by our parents. I don't know why I had to bring them into that whole image. That's just terrible. I do apologise. <laughs> Especially as you kind of sort of mix in our parents. <laughs> oh god! In like a big yeah. Anyway, no, I'm, I was about to go further down that. <laughs> like a road. big what? No, no, I'm going back to the robot created poetry. 1983 is a long time ago. And um, and it is quite funny. I mean, when you look at it, it's, abs- it's absolute rubbish. It really is absolute rubbish. And, you know, the point was just to say that it, it could happen. But, I mean, things have come on a long way in 30 years. And, you know, now there are a lot of people investing a lot of time and research into getting compu- code and programs just right so that they can actually produce whole novels. Uh, there's even, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, and, you know, like... Uh, Nano, oh, <laughs> I've done it again. I can't even remember what it is. Nano Rimo. Nano Rimo. There's a Nano Genmo, a National Novel Generation Month, where you can um, submit your novels along with the programs that created them. So stuff's happening, man. I just don't see the point in this. You don't. Hmm. Well, what's, tell me what the point is. Well, I imagine the point is a bit like if you were to take computer-generated people and animation I could do and that. like that. I, I, you know, I'm sure actors and actresses are like, well, what, what's, the, what's the point in that? But... What do you mean? Like, what do you mean? So as in... Um, in terms of replacing like, the hu- like human creativity to see if we can get 
computers to replicate that or, or to, to get to a stage where you could call it imagination. So Russell Crowe is watching Frozen and he looks at Olaf and thinks, damn that computer-generated snowman, <laughs> I could have, that could have been me, I could have been that role. No, absolutely not. I'm not talking about children's animation, but there are films coming and there are, have been films made where adults have been, adult actors have been replaced by animated peeps. What are, we talk, are we talking? Do you mean are you just talking like regular animated films? Because yeah. I think that they're, they're supposed to be like cartoons. What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> Hang on a minute. Let me just think about. Do you know? I remember that song. You used to like a song, and it was from that film. And I can't even remember what it's called now. The film with that is compute, computer generated completely with adults in it. And they were talking about how great it was. Anyway. Whatever. There's also films with uh, Robin Wright Penn. There's a film with Robin Wright Penn about it as well. A computer-generated film with adults in it. <laughs> well, I don't, Actors I don't know. and actresses <laughs> being replaced, basically. They are not in it. Well, like Avatar, where it's a fine line between what's the animation and what's yeah, the actual well, I mean, person. Avatar actually had actors and actresses in it, didn't it? But, but it's not necessary in, anymore. Because there was a time when you couldn't create the subtleties of human movement with computer animation and it's got to the stage now where you can so do you mean a bit like Gollum where where Andy Serkis was all strapped up and he kind yeah, of no, played the was, part he was in it again I'm talking about where you wouldn't even get Andy Serkis in they would call him up and say Andy don't need you for Lord of the Rings reboot 2017 that's actually only in two years time <laughs> 20 million and 55 i can't even think of a date in the future that's ridiculous they 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 better ring him now they start shooting next month (laughs) say andy don't bother coming in because now we don't even need real humans so don't worry we're just going to do Gollum on our own although Gollum's not human so that's a terrible example how do we even get onto this the point is i think what's interesting is exploring pieces of writing that are composed or co-authored by humans and code, because that is that is a very interesting thing. If you're a, if you're a writer, I mean, it's just basically a way to explore other ideas that you hadn't thought of yourself to see what a computer, like a massive, a massive brain, can give you as as inspiration that you hadn't imagined. I think that could be very interesting in the future. It could be. Sounds a bit like cheating, but I'm sure that's. I'm sure at some point we will all be doing it. Absolutely. Uh, I just wanted to share one of the reviews on Amazon of that original, I think it was actually called The World's First um, uh, Book Written by a Computer. The Policeman's Beard is Half Constructed. The programme is called Racta. I love the reviews of it. One of them said that Racta seems to have a predilection for lettuce. (laughs) I was like, okay. Well, then really, we really need to come on a bit further before we start producing poetry books written by robots, (laughs) if that's the case. Anyway, there you go. Is this a little insight into the future? I can't wait. I can't wait to get there. No. Um, would you like to talk briefly about something to do with the present? Um, I do. Should we talk about, well, do you think, I don't know, do, are we going to sort of break down the doors of the bitter barn again if we talk about 24 things that no one tells you about book publishing? Well, we could, we could share that briefly. Because we, we had that... Yeah, go on, go on. No, we had this on the list last week we were going to talk about. It. We never quite got to it, but it it's on BuzzFeed. And believe it or not, it's actually a relatively 
uh, interesting, well thought out. Um, <laughs> sort of. I mean, it's still a it's still a, a listicle, of course. Yes. But um, but there were some there were some interesting list items, and you've picked a few out here. Shall we just sort of go through them and offer our own our own thoughts? Let's do that. Yes, let's do that. Twenty four things no one tells you about book publishing. I mean, we could actually add on the things that we we're talking about about the stats that I said earlier. No poetry books don't sell but I like this one this was um, about readings when you do readings nobody tells you that at reading or at a reading 25 audience members and 20 chairs is better than 200 audience members and 600 chairs just let you digest that for a minute um yeah I mean I I I like that one too I think that's a a really good point especially as someone who has organized quite a lot of uh, reading events and um, a full room no matter how big the room is is far more um, important than, um, than 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 kind of numbers unless people are paying I suppose because there's quite a big difference between 200 people going and 25 people going if you're getting but it's not the five full quid room time. though is it that's, that's what they're saying that is not important at all it's just important that you are able to judge how many chairs to put out so when everybody comes in you're not having to fold away chairs at the back because it looks like no one's turned up. Like if you imagine that there's only going to be 10 people coming, put out 10 chairs, and then if 20 people come, hooray! Yep. Standing room only at the back. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes. Would you like to share the next one? Uh, when your book is on bestseller lists, people find you more amusing and respond to your emails faster. Yes. And on the other side of that, when your book isn't on bestseller lists, your life is calmer and you have more time to write. Um, that's not that's not true. Really? Well, in the in, in terms don't. of the writing world, you're not being hounded by publishers saying, "How's it going with your second book?" That's true. <laughs> that that is true. Um, another point that I thought was interesting was that if you tell readers a book is autobiographical, they will try to find ways it isn't. If you tell them it's not autobiographical. They will try to find ways it is. I can't help when I read a book wondering whether it's something that if I read something funny, if that's something that they've just imagined or whether something slightly like that has happened to them in their lives. I think that's quite a natural thing, don't you think so? I think it is natural and I don't think I thought it through when I wrote my book, which is almost uh, in in terms of the actual plot and, and the characters pretty non-autobiographical and I didn't really think about how many people would assume that I was a pervert (laughs) yes or that you'd um, struggled with some really really heavy stuff in your life let's put it that way that's true actually and that's a far more far more serious uh, uh, way of thinking about it than what I just suggested but that is true I did um, I did have to I felt obliged almost especially when I was doing um, when I kind of when I do readings I feel obliged to say to people oh I've not I've not had uh, anyone in my family have a stroke because they will always say oh did someone in your you know is this something that happened to you or do you know someone who had a stroke and I kind of feel obliged to start off by saying I don't but something sort of similar happened to me after a while and and um, and uh, I did lots of research is is that okay Mm. um because people do assume I think we all do naturally don't we you read a book and you just you know you just naturally put your Put put the two and two together. Yeah, and make and make five usually. Yes, well, um, my poetry collection is pretty much eighty percent autobiographical. I'd say, 
Mm. There are a couple of poems where people are probably like, what? <laughs> Those ones aren't. My life's not that exciting. <laughs> the other point, I think this was the last one off that list that I thought was quite interesting, was if someone asks what you do and you don't feel like getting into it, insert the word freelance before the word writer and they will inquire about nothing more. I thought that was great. It's true, isn't it? What do you do, freelance writer? Ah, great. <laughs> Where do we I, go that, I, with that conversation? <laughs> exactly. That because uh, and I, I, it also avoids something that happens with me if I say, "Oh, I'm a I'm a copywriter," and then like a, a week later, <laughs> this has actually happened. Like a couple of weeks later, so that person will email me and say, oh, I, didn't, "I enjoyed that little chat we had with you." Um, uh, the other night at the at the uh, at the ball. Can you look at my and, CV? Um, um, no, they don't. They 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 get it totally wrong, and they say, um, "Oh, I've uh, I've just uh, I've <laughs> they say I've got a five track EP um, uh, coming out soon, and um, it's going to be big, and um, and I'd like to. I just I'm not sure. I think I might need to put it into a large parcel, fold it three times." Uh, put my own address on and put it in the post. And I have to say, oh, no, no, I'm not that kind of copywriter, but that is probably the right thing to do. <laughs> Good one. Um, <laughs> Should we, is that the end? Uh, I don't know. Shall I? Uh, no, well, yeah, OK, yeah, that can be the end. I've got um, some things that I was going to say at the start, but I've forgotten. Oh. I forgot, I forgot, I forgot to do it, and now I've got to do it now at the end when no one listens. Oh, everyone's still listening. Um, I wanted to encourage listeners uh, to um, maybe sign up for my newsletter. All right, yeah. Which which, um, I sent my first newsletter of 2015 out um, last week and... um, and, and I hadn't sent one for about six months. I've been very, I've been very sketchy, very sporadic with my newsletter sending out nuss. And um, there are about three hundred people subscribed to my to my newsletter, and um, and I've got quite a low unsubscribe rate, which is exciting. And uh, according to Mailchimp, I have an above average click rate, which uh, means an awful lot to me. Um, and uh, and basically, it's um, it's a weekly, a very short weekly email. And uh, and the, the main benefit for you, uh, apart from if you really do want to hear about stuff that I'm up to every now and again, uh, which I don't post often because if you listen to this, then you probably get the gist anyway. Um, but it's a, a handful of links uh, to things that um, I've found interesting. And it's not always about writing and reading and publishing. It might be something else that I've found interesting. Maybe it's to do with productivity or technology or just life in general. And um, and uh, and uh, and I'd be delighted if you signed up and uh, and joined in with that. You can do that by going to ianbroom.com slash mailing hyphen list. Now I'm going to change that URL. That one will still work, but I'm going to change it to slash newsletter. But assume for now, if you listen to this in uh, January or early February 2015, <laughs> 2017. Then, uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say in the future. Yeah. Yeah, Russell Crowe's out of work at that point. <laughs> Um, then yeah, so sign up for my uh, newsletter. Just go to uh, my website and you can find it there. Uh, permit me to do some more minor promotion. <laughs> Why not, Ian? Why not? Please. Um, I I wrote a blog post um, uh, called Reclamation, um, which is 
um, about sort of about reading and, and and writing, looking at stuff, and um, and being more aware as 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 an author. And in some way, it was about parenting um, as well. And um, that's had some nice responses too. And I'm going to be trying to try my best. I'm not going to set ludicrous goals, but I'm going to do my best to write more of that kind of piece. Because I think we do all of our writing stuff, all of our kind of, this is kind of, you know, writing and publishing news and information on the podcast. So I'm going to try and do a bit more um, kind of creative writing. It's almost creative writing in a way on um, on the blog. So that's uh, that'll be in the show notes too. So, you know, f- I'd you know feel free to check that out. That's it. I've got nothing else. No more to promote. That's brilliant. That's it. We're done. You got anything to flog? <laughs> no. No. no, nothing at all. Don't even bother. No, I oh, know. No. I haven't actually. What if people wanted to talk to you on Twitter? Well, then I would be delighted. And they could do that um, by attaching my Twitter handle to their tweet at The Flying Poet. And I am at Ian Broom, I A I N B O O M E. And you are very welcome to send us an email, uh, Ian at writeforyourlife.net. I will make sure I forward it on to Donna. And you can ask us questions. If you have any writing-related questions, then get in touch and we might answer it on the show. Or if you just have comments about the show, then you should do that too. Send them over. And if you if you enjoy the show, if you enjoy this show, then I'm told that uh, if people leave reviews on iTunes, then it's really good, uh, especially if it's a good review. Don't leave bad reviews, just good reviews, uh, because it helps the podcast in innumerable ways that i don't understand but uh if you do get chance to leave a review a positive review of course on uh on itunes then you know feel free oh. don't 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 feel obliged but no, we would really ab- be lovely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Thanks. i mean do actually maybe maybe do feel a bit obliged <laughs> yes it's your responsibility it's our listeners nobody else is going to do it apart from our listeners i mean my mum will do it she's bound to do it i bet she hasn't you know <laughs> I bet she doesn't as well. Anyway, anyway, what a lovely, we've, it's just flown by and we'll have lots more to talk about next week and we'll see you then. We will. Farewell. Bye.